0: also, July 3rd, 2022. And today's episode, we are going to tackle VeggieTales theology head-on. I have made many references over the years to VeggieTales in particular and concerns that I have about VeggieTales, and we will get into those. Spoiler alert, my chief complaint with regards to VeggieTales is that it takes all of the sex and violence out of the Bible. Go figure. But starting off, we will talk about <laughs> a couple of miscellaneous, sundry items in the news that I found interesting, and I think you will also find them interesting if you haven't seen these headlines or heard this news. The Epoch Times has an article this week about North Dakota Ruling on Bill Gates's $13.5 million farmland purchase in that state. This was published the day before yesterday. And what it really boils down to is that Bill Gates, Microsoft founder, big proponent of vaccination and the Great Reset, has one legal approval to buy a whole lot of farmland in North Dakota. And the local residents are not thrilled about this. Some are downright livid. And North Dakota people typically are understated to a fault, I would say. Not usually real excitable. Typically about as plain as the state, actually. Hardworking, salt-of-the-earth type people But they don't particularly love that Bill Gates is trying to buy up big swaths of land. They're they're not huge proponents of that. Now, a curious thing here, 2,100 acres of farmland was bought by Red River Trust, a Texas-based organization controlled by Bill Gates, near the border of Minnesota and Canada in North Dakota. 2,100 acres, boy howdy. Uh, 2,100 acres, why are we buying up all that land? Well, truth be told, 2,100 acres out west is uh, really not a huge, huge amount, truth be told. I mean, it's a good-sized bit of land uh, out east. If you have 2,100 acres out east, boy howdy. Uh, But North Dakota, Montana especially in dry parts of that region, you're not going to get huge yields out of that much land. You're just not. To give you a little bit of perspective, when I was a kid growing up, my dad farmed in eastern Montana, and he had, if memory serves, about 1,800 acres that he specifically worked. His dad, my grandfather, and his brother, my Uncle Merle, They all worked together. They did cooperative farming. They had adjacent sections or pieces of land, adjacent properties, and they would share equipment and help one another out. And I believe it was 5,400 acres or something like that near Bloomfield, Montana. But that's not uncommon out west in some of these drier regions. In large part because you just don't get huge yields out of a lot of these uh, pieces of property. You don't get huge yields. Now, you might get enough to make it profitable. That's good. But a lot of folks, I don't think, realize how capital-intensive and how uncertain farming is. When the piece of farming equipment, known as a combine or a tractor or some of the implements you're going to have to get for those uh, when that can quickly put you into the half a million to a million dollars uh, expenditure before you know it, and we're not even talking about the cost of the land itself, or seed, or fertilizer, or if you do use pesticides and herbicides, those expenses, Uh, not to mention if you have to bring water in irrigation wise. I mean, it gets really, really expensive in a hurry. And all it takes is the rain not raining or a problem with uh, locusts or a bad hailstorm to throw all of that expenditure into only expense category with not much to show for it in terms of Profit. So North Dakota rules on Bill Gates' $13.5 million farmland purchase. I feel like 2,100 acres, if that's all it is, that's not a great deal of land. Maybe they're missing a zero. If we're talking 21,000 acres of farmland, well, then that's a pretty good chunk. That's a fair amount of land. (laughs) But I think the concern here is. Bill Gates, what are your intentions? Why do you want to buy this land? Also, why are you buying farmland all over the U.S.? And what are you going to do with it? Speaking of vasectomies, like we talked about in yesterday's episode, I think Bill Gates and his purchase of farmland all over the U.S., uh, a lot of farmland all over the U.S., uh, it can feel a little bit like he has an intention to uh, give our nation's food-supplying capacity, of uh, vasectomy. Hey, you, you guys, you don't need all of this food. I've just decided I'm going to buy a bunch of land and give it back to the planet, and I'll hold it in trust, but no soup for you. You don't need food. But who knows? That's speculative. That is speculative, admittedly, and I think the fair conclusion to draw is that he is not uh, a farmer by trade and doesn't seem like the kind who is just going to take up farming. But he does have some really weird ideas about what would be best for the planet and humanity. And I don't know anybody who trusts him, quite frankly. So the combination of the investment in land and his weird ideas about what the planet Needs from him and what humanity needs from him, those things together, uh, I can understand why people uh, in these rural areas are uncomfortable with his major land purchases. Just saying. But in other news, <clears throat> I ran across a article at merriamwebster.com. Merriam Webster is not really the best source to go to for the definition of words. They are doing some social engineering over at Merriam-Webster. They're, of course, not the only ones, but they, in recent years, have made a habit of changing definitions of words and concepts to redefine debates and to give wins to progressives, to the utopians. It's crazy, but for unsuspecting people who really don't know the meanings of those words, haven't known the meanings of those words, it works. You just change the definition of it, and you can kind of memory hole the conservative argument, uh, unfortunately. So I wouldn't go to Merriam-Webster as a rule unless you already have a pretty good idea of what a word means, or unless we're talking about an uncontroversial word, if there is such a thing anymore. But I was looking up a word at Merriam-Webster's because it's convenient, And I already had some idea. I was just curious what they would define this word as. And I scrolled all the way down to the bottom of the page. And here is this article filed under World History. (laughs) A wee bit presumptuous when you read the headline and the subject and the content of the article. But the title of the article is Pride the word that went from vice to strength, why pride sometimes comes with a capital P. Of course, they've got a rainbow flag pictured as their featured image, and they get into the historical usage of the word, and they've got quotes, and they've got dates, and they explain how gay pride came to be uh, a virtue as they see it. And I would just suggest if the word, and therefore the concept, was historically thought of as a vice, and we now think of it as a virtue, that may not mean that <laughs> it is now actually a virtue. That might mean that folks like whoever wrote this over at Merriam-Webster uh, just love vice. Uh, they immoral people. It doesn't mean that all the rest of humanity before you was wrong. Uh, It's kind of like the guy driving the wrong way down an interstate and getting honked at, people swerving out of his way, and then remarking to his wife that, boy, howdy, people are just crazy drivers these days. Why is everybody else going the wrong way? Well, they're not, actually, necessarily. Uh, They are perhaps going the right way down the interstate and you would seem to be going the wrong direction or have you checked? Maybe maybe it's worth a second look at least. And of course, we can be susceptible to that mechanic actually when a lot of other people are going the wrong way or when we're told that they're going the wrong way. But I would be really, really careful supposing too much about what is reported about the majority of Americans thinking this, or the majority of Americans thinking that. Notice how when the position is a conservative one and the mainstream media or leftists or progressives in media are the ones doing the reporting, they tend to highlight any change in the direction of more progressivism, or they tend to like to do the polling in uh, very clever ways in the areas where they expect to get the responses that they want, that they want to tell us so that they can create a Jones effect. Oh, we got to keep up with the cool kids, the ones who are smart and intelligent and successful because you want to be smart, intelligent, and successful too, right? So you've got to think like this and you've got to feel this way and you've got to be born this way. And I would say, well, you've got to get born again another way because you are not headed for success really you're just being bribed with temporary success very short-term success but again what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul in other news speaking of spin and manipulation and indoctrination and brainwashing and all that Hillsdale College president under fire after ripping state of public education here's what he said reported by Tim Pierce yesterday at the Daily Wire. And you should go check it out. Go look it up. Uh, he was very, very candid, very blunt in this private event, a local Tennessee outlet. News Channel 5, Nashville, got a hold of uh recording, and they're running with it. And the Tennessee governor, Bill Lee, was at the event as the special guest, And so now, of course, this is going to be a big to-do and a big stink. And the irony is, what have we been all upset about the past two years with teachers' unions shutting down schools, refusing to go back to school until it was safe? And by safe, they meant until we had abolished capitalism and uh, decided to affirm as one people Black Lives Matter, and the claims of systemic racism, CRT, et cetera, et cetera, that was not about safety. That was about socialism, actually. Teachers unions wanted us to become a socialist country, and they were trying to hold hostage the education of our whole country's education system. They were were trying to hold the education of our children hostage uh, because they could, because they have a monopoly on it. And the Hillsdale College president criticizing public education and the whole idea, the schema of public education in this country, you know, that he's, from what I'm reading here, I'll just say this, from what I'm reading here, he's right. And it is worth questioning when so many of the fruits of public education are objectively bad. And when they have produced still more fruits in broader society, because we're training up children in the way they should go, when they're older, they don't depart from it. Uh, You know, when so many of those fruits are bad, take for instance, the article from Merriam Webster, where pride used to be a vice, but now it's a strength. No, it's it's still a vice, actually. And it's not a strength now, just because you think it's a strength. I thought you guys were the dictionary. You were supposed to be (laughs) the chosen one. You were the chosen one. You were supposed to bring balance to the force. No, no. Uh, the president of Hillsdale College, uh gentleman by the name of Larry Arn, he is right. And this is also why we homeschool, by the way. This is why we homeschool, because our public education system is fundamentally, at its root, ideologically, in principle, off its rocker. It is out to lunch. It is and has been for a long, long time about social engineering in a decidedly godless way. And we are reaping the whirlwind as a result. We are bearing the fruits in keeping, not with repentance, but with hubris and godlessness. As a country, I think a century is enough. We need more homeschooling, moms and dads, more charter schools. We need more moms and dads to teach their children the fear and admonition of the Lord, and to give them an actually good education, because getting an education in education, uh, as Larry Arn, one of his criticisms, points out, it is kind of, um, it's kind of silly, actually. You know, in times past, in centuries past, people were teachers because they knew the subjects, not because they knew education in some kind of a vague nebulous, disembodied sense. What do you teach? Well, I teach education. Huh? What? What? Uh, hmm. You know, why not, if you're going to, let's say, for instance, teach chemistry, spend all your time studying chemistry, and then you'll be able to teach it. Or if you're going to teach writing, like, spend all your time writing and learning how to write, but don't spend all your time learning how to teach, no, learn the subject itself, and then you'll be able to teach it. But you can't teach it if you don't know it. And you can't teach it if you just know how to teach in the abstract. But as he points out, what we have, what we have an awful lot of is we've got bureaucrats. We have bureaucrats who are the administrators, and if you look back in history to the origins of the Prussian model of public education, which is what our system is based off of, the Prussian model was designed to be intensely hierarchical and to imitate uh, a, the structure of an army. Let's have these kids seated in rows and columns, and we will give them teachers and principals and superintendents, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and a chain of command very similar to what they would see in an army. But it's most unnatural. This is not the way that children throughout history have typically learned, except in those countries which have tried really hard to imitate the Prussian model. Do we want to imitate the Prussian model? Well, maybe not, unless you want the same things that Frederick the Great wanted, namely to make slaves out of 99 in 100 of the pupils who go through that education system based on the model. It is a fundamentally flawed model if what you're trying to produce is children with independent minds who know how to think and to be logical and to ask important questions and to formulate opinions based on facts instead of just their feelings. But of course, we know what we have and it is not that. And this is why we homeschool. By the way, you can go check out amazon.com or most any other place where books are available to purchase online. Buy my book and this is why we homeschool. It is... If I do say so myself, uh, persuasive, I think it will persuade you. It has persuaded some already that they should homeschool in the first place or that they should keep on homeschooling. And it might persuade you too if you're already homeschooling and you need a little bit of encouragement, check it out. If you were homeschooled and you have felt embarrassed about that, apologetic about that for a long time, insecure about that, I think you would also enjoy reading my book as it stands, uh, a defense of homeschooling over and against the majority view, which has been brainwashed by the system that we have. You could say, again, with my analogy earlier about driving uh, down the wrong road or the right road in the wrong direction compared with everybody else, you could say, well, that's you. No, that's not quite what this is. This is more like you know, if we've got <laughs> everybody driving down the same road and it's extremely congested and it's in bad shape and it's in disrepair and it doesn't take us where we want to go, well then why would we get on that road just because everybody else is on it? Hey, I don't want to go where these people are going and I don't want to drive on that road because it's in terrible condition. And also, traffic is ground to a halt because there are so many people jam-packed into it and this is not sustainable. So I'm going to take a side road, and I'm going to go off in a different direction, because lo and behold, I want to go to a different destination anyways. That's what the difference is between homeschooling and public schooling in a nutshell. Lastly, before we get into the main topic, which we will not spend, obviously, at this point, if it was not clear to you before, I will confirm your suspicions. Uh, We won't spend the full hour talking about VeggieTales, but there was this funny picture of a article in a newspaper that I saw on Facebook last night. Bert Kelly posted this and it's got a little bit of captioning up above. You're sure that's the right word? Like 80% sure. Yeah. Print it. So this is an imagined dialogue between a writer and an editor or an editor and a publisher, right? Now, what is the uh, <laughs> what is the actual screenshot from uh, this sports article in a newspaper? Amphibious pitcher makes debut. Venditte becomes first pitcher in 20 years to pitch with both arms in MLB game by Howard Ullman. And of course, there's a picture side by side. Within the article, two pictures, I suppose you should say, two images. One of Ullman throwing right-handed, one of him throwing left-handed. And uh, it's funny, of course, obviously, because amphibious is not the right word. Uh, amphibious pitcher is very funny if you think of it as possibly being the right word. Imagine a scenario in which the stadium gets flooded and we need a pitcher who can pitch. On dry land and also in the water. uh, Equally well. (laughs) But. uh, The word is ambidextrous. Just saying. Uh, Again. Merriam-Webster. Public education. This is why we homeschool. Moving on to the main topic. Veggie tales. I have been. Mulling it over. For quite some time. Doing. Doing. A podcast episode more specifically about my concerns with Vigitales theology. And actually, you know what? I'm I'm gonna play a little bit of a clip before I jump into the topic, just to intro the kinds of conversations I suspect are had behind closed doors between the writers and uh creators of shows like Veggie Tales. Uh This is from the arguably best, most popular, funniest, most delightful Christmas movie of all time, Elf. But this is a conversation between some of the writers for this publishing company uh, talking about bringing in a big shot writer to help pitch uh, a better book than they have any idea or notion to... Uh, come up with. So take a listen. a young tomato. He's had some tough times down at the farm, you know, a rabbit. No. No tomatoes. tomatoes. Too vulnerable. Kids, they're already vulnerable. No, you see, I, I, I told you guys. A, I told them the very same No thing. farms. Everybody's pushing small town rural. Farm book would just be white noise. Well, what about this? Uh, a tribe of asparagus children, but they're self-conscious about the way their pee smells. Apparently, all we have is vegetables. I have no time, so, you know, yeah, you can right. I've got about five or six great starts here. i got one idea that I'm specially psyched out of my mind about. You know, it's one of those ideas where you're just like, uh, Yes! <laughs> uh, great. Can, can we hear it? I'll start with the cover. Picture this. You got, uh... Yes! I'm in love! I'm in love! And I don't care who knows it! And cut. (laughs) Uh, You know how the rest of that scene goes. Call me an elf one more time. (laughs) So funny. He is an angry elf, Miles Finch. But like that conversation, right? Like that conversation is being had. And there is some question as to what are we doing? right like what are we doing here where <laughs> we need all of our children's stories to be about talking vegetables right i mean that's maybe a little bit of a riff on veggie tales i don't know maybe not but in my mind it uh is a shoe that fits and the kinds of conversations that are had about oh no these you know everybody's pushing rural small town america it's just going to be white noise you know no tomatoes are too vulnerable kids already feel vulnerable know, oh these this tribe of asparagus is feeling insecure about the way their pea smells. Like what? Like what are you talking about? This is not connected to reality, but I feel like what it is connected to is a certain trend in recent decades, in the past century. Thanks to men like John Dewey, thanks to the fact that public education produced most of the minds in America, including the minds who make most of the media, most of the content. Not necessarily the ones who green light most of the content or fund most of the content. Not necessarily the same folks, but public education has shaped our expectations. And our public education system particularly has a certain philosophy with regards to what is best for children, what is best for the country and what is best for all of us. And I would just suggest to you, maybe some of the assumptions are not correct. Maybe some of the assumptions are not as helpful as we think that they are. And do we ever question them? Do we ever second guess those assumptions? Do we we see? (laughs) I'll pose this in the form of a hypothetical. Do we see children being... Educated in this way, Christian children in particular, at other points throughout history, namely with talking vegetables. I mean, there's a kind of veganism and vegetarianism inherent to using talking vegetables to tell all of your biblical stories, right? There, There is a a latent pacifism in saying so and so is not going to kill so and so we're just going to show this whole story and portray it with people slapping one another with fish uh or being you know saying saying unkind things to one another well is that a hop skip and a jump to saying that language is uh violence your words are violence or even your silence is violence is that a hop skip and a jump to allergic reactions to disagreement or free speech on even college campuses? Again, with the question of public schools, I mean, how comprehensive are we in our conception of what it means to train up a child in the way that they should go so that when they're older, they won't depart from it? And are we responsible for perpetual adolescence because we opt in for things like veggie tales and for very sanitized portrayals of biblical stories in the biblical narrative preferring sanitized portrayals over and against actually just reading the Bible to our kids and part of where I think my disconnect is with veggie tales has to do with how late in life I was introduced to veggie tales have you ever found this to be the case when you're talking about some movie you watched a lot growing up And you're introducing it to a friend who never watched that movie. They never grew up with that movie. Or even if you're just watching something that you used to watch a long time ago when you were a kid. And it was the coolest. It was just the coolest thing. And then 20 years goes by. And you watch it again. And yeah, you have that nostalgia of... Oh man, I remember this one time we watched it when I was a kid. And I was wearing my pajamas. We ordered pizza and just fell asleep on the couch and it was so much fun. And, you know, there's that. But then if you are showing it to a friend who never watched it growing up, they're watching it for the first time at 30 or 35 or 40 years old. They just kind of give you a look like, well, it's, it's okay. I will never watch this again. It's okay. But it's this is not great. It's just a movie to me. And actually it's kind of cheesy because it was made 30 years ago and the special effects are not great. And some of the acting is kind of campy, but a 10-year-old me didn't notice that or 35-year-old them definitely does notice that. I was introduced to VeggieTales in my teens, uh, late teens actually. And primarily VeggieTales was on when I was helping with children's ministry or VBS or if Lauren and I were volunteering with a children's ministry uh, in Dayton, Ohio, when we were in college, maybe the kids would watch the latest VeggieTales movie. I think it was uh, some playoff of Lord of the Rings, right? So they were going to make a VeggieTales version of Lord of the Rings. But again, it's all vegetables and We won't show the scary orcs and goblins and trolls and dragons and all of that, the death and dying and, you know, nothing, nothing like the explicit graphic violence of the Battle of the Five Armies extended edition, which is very graphic, by the way. They pulled out all the stops. Uh, There are definitely orcs that explode and get cut in two and. It's just a lot of like really, really graphic violence. But then with it being a battle and war, there would be. So that's not, you know, like if you're showing battle and war and that was the subject, you know, there's some realism there that is appropriate, I would argue. But if we don't think so, what all has gone into are not thinking so? You know, that's a That's a question that we should consider. We should mull over. And someone will say, well, you know, violence in particular, if we're watching graphic portrayals of violence all the time, we will get desensitized to violence. And then our kids may think that it's okay to be violent, uh, maybe extremely violent even, towards friends. And they won't have barriers, uh, psychological barriers to being violent. And then we'll have more crime and domestic violence and war. And so we want peace, but that means we're going to have to give our children a steady diet of peaceful content, you know, violent video games as well. Do we want our kids playing violent video games? I'm worried that that's going to desensitize them to violence. And then next thing you know, they're going to think that it's okay to shoot uh aliens in real life, or it's okay to shoot <laughs> whatever, right? They're going to think that that's okay in real life to do that, but it's not. But wait a second, like what all went into your assessment that that's not okay ever, right? And also have we set up some kids, uh not because we portrayed violence, but because we portrayed it, in a values-neutral, godless way, in conjunction with a scientific, secular view of our origins, where we come from, when we say that there is no God and that we're all just animals, and you show animals being violent towards one another, hunting, killing, eating one another, and then you show people being violent towards one another, uh, and but you say you know we're just animals. Okay, yes, right? Yes, that's deeply concerning. But is that what the Bible does? Is that what we find in God's word, particularly in the Old Testament? Well, no, actually, from the jump, we are given the narrative in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that sets up not just where we come from, but also who we belong to, and also in whose image are we made, and also what is the purpose of our being here, that God created us. Well, if I have questions about our purpose and how we should live and what we should be about, and how we should treat one another, I would ask the one who made us. Or, if he's already spoken to that, I would consider what he said. And then, if there is violence in the world, and if there is a place for and a time for, say, for instance, Romans 13, the governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing. Well, what does he bear the sword for? Well, he bears the sword to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil. He re- he rewards those who do good in large part by using that sword to protect them as they are conducting the business of life. And how does he punish the evildoer? Well, eh, frankly, he threatens him with the sword if he doesn't knock it off, if he doesn't stop being... A thief and a murderer and a rapist. If you don't stop that, I'm going to have to arrest you. And the libertarian minded will say, well, that, no, eh, behind every command by a governing official is the threat of violence. Yes, actually. And the Apostle Paul attests to that as well. Yes, and rightly so. He does not bear the sword for nothing is another way of saying he does bear the sword for something, and that something he bears the sword for is punishing those who do evil. I am going to arrest you, and you are going to stand trial, and if you fight me and you resist arrest, I may have to use this weapon against you to defend myself because I am carrying out a lawful order to arrest you, to detain you, to take you to jail where you will await trial because you've been caught in flagrante. There are strong reasons to suppose you have broken the law and you've endangered the lives and property of other people, either recklessly or intentionally, because you're malicious, you're evil, you're wicked, you are a wrongdoer doing wrong. Yes, that sword, that weapon, that violence, that instrument of violence is being threatened and rightly so, as it should be. But if we are raised on a steady diet of niceness and vegetables and tribes of asparagus who feel insecure about the way their pee smells, we may not have any concept that there is a time for war as well as a time for peace. And some of this, quite frankly, some of this is related to, actually, I think a very great deal of this is related to the post-war consensus. What we find after World War I and World War II is that the elites around the world, especially in the U.S. and the U.K., the elites in academia, in politics, in business, the men with a lot of money and a lot of influence and a lot of power, got together and they started planning how to re-engineer humanity, how to make us to where we would not have a World War III And a lot of the ways that they've tried to do this have actually badly broken our understanding of what is true, what is good, and what is right on purpose, not accidentally. See, what they realized is that a large part of what causes war is that we disagree about what is true and what is good and what is right. Now, never mind that some people lie. (laughs) <laughs> that is also, you know, that that, that is also the uh, thing you have to consider, and of course we know that, but yet a lot of the social engineering is predicated on lying, and so we don't necessarily think about it in the macro, in the way that we should, where the social engineering is concerned. We just are taught, very many of us, in a million ways to set aside our deeply held convictions or to not have them in the first place, if you can keep people from having those deeply held convictions in the first place, well, then you can eliminate the source of much conflict, especially where two nations may come to blows and then their allies enter the fray to support their friends. And then before you know it, the whole world is embroiled in conflict. But a big question to my mind is not, First and foremost, how do we have peace in the world and put an end to wars and rumors of wars? How do we say peace, peace when there is no peace? First and foremost, my question would be, how do we have peace with God if we have no conception of justice? In fact, how do we have peace with God if a lot of our conceptions of justice have a kind of godliness, a form of godliness, but deny its power? Because power is itself an instrument of war. Or could lead to conflict. References to power could lead to conflict. How do we have peace with God if there is an inherent injustice to automatically taking the side of anyone who is dead at the hands of law enforcement? We take their side of it, even if they are reaching for a weapon, even if they're threatening the life of the law enforcement officer, what? Uh, No, like this guy's not a victim. He was resisting arrest. The cop was trying to detain him, but the guy didn't want to be detained and was fighting with the cop. And you have no idea how to even think through this because you've never been a cop trying to detain somebody who doesn't want to be detained. You've never gotten kicked in the face. You've never gotten... Punched. You've never had somebody reach for a knife and known statistically that in no time flat, you could be dead if you don't eliminate the threat. You give them a lawful order. Not only do they not obey the lawful order, they reach for a deadly weapon to assault you with it and you eliminate the threat. But you're the bad guy. There are a lot of implications. There are a lot of implications for how we relate to law enforcement how we relate to our elected officials, how we relate to even matters in our own immediate sphere, not even talking about law enforcement and the difference between a representative of our government doing justice on the one hand and what far too many refer to as vigilante justice. You know What is vigilante justice? Is vigilante justice if somebody breaks into my house and they're threatening my family and I, and I shoot them. Is that vigilante justice? No. Vigilante justice would be, I hear a rumor that some person across town just molested a child, and I believe it, and so I go over and I do justice as I see it. I execute justice. I don't have a badge. I don't have any actual authority to do this. They haven't stood trial. They haven't had any due process. They haven't had their day in court. That's vigilante justice. But if all we know, if all we know is veggie tales and people slapping one another with fish and needing to repent of that, or else God's going to slap their whole city with a bigger fish or what, if that's all we know, well, then we really don't have a frame of reference for the biblical text. And when we come to the actual biblical text, we we are going to be, <laughs> we're going to be scandalized. And yet, in that moment, maybe the better question to ask is whether using flannel graph and talking vegetables to tell all of our Bible stories is the real scandal, ironically. You know, I said at the top of this episode, I wanted to talk about the trouble with VeggieTales theology and how the trouble has to do with taking all of the sex and violence out of the Bible. And that's an attention-getter, right? Especially if you are the father of a conservative homeschooling family, husband and father, you know, husband to a wife who is homeschooling uh, eight children, father to those eight children. Also, you know, I myself am participating in homeschooling our eight children. And we are a conservative homeschooling family in many ways. Not just to be conservative or just to be fashionable. I reserve the right to disagree with conservatives when I think they're mistaken, actually, and they're conserving the wrong thing. But if I say to you, I think a lot of the trouble with VeggieTales theology is that it takes all the sex and violence out of the Bible, you might respond with a hyperbolic counterpoint. Well, what? right? Should we have our kids watching graphic violence and graphic sex at five, six, seven years old, eight years old? Well, I would turn that question around and I would say, what does the public education system think our kids should be exposed to? What does Walt Disney Company actually think our kids should be exposed to? And is that potentially far more pernicious? I would say that it is. You know, in in the past year, consider this, in the past year, Florida, as a state, was going to pass, and then did pass, some legislation that came to be known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. That language was not in the legislation, but LGBTQ activists tried to stigmatize the legislation by alleging that that is a fair summation, Don't Say Gay. If you actually know the details of the legislation, however, the point was that public school teachers in the state of Florida would not be allowed to talk with children younger than eight about sex. And I think to myself, given what a lot of public school teachers apparently believe about sexual ethics, sexual morality, or sexual immorality, namely that they really don't think there is any such thing as sexual immorality. Their sexual ethic is libertine and immoral and ungodly. Eight years old is too young still. Why stop at eight? Let's go all the way to 18. Don't talk with my kids about sex until they're not kids. You don't need to be talking with my kids about you and your partner. You just don't. That's not what they're supposed to be getting an education in. They're supposed to be learning how to read and do math, and they should be learning civics, and they should be learning science, good science, actual science, not your pseudoscientific doom and gloom about climate change and evolution and transgenderism and what is a woman anyways. We don't even know basic biology, male and female. Don't talk with my kids about sex. In fact, actually don't talk with my kids at all, because you are a creeper. Is this what they teach teachers these days? But the Walt Disney Company threatened the state of Florida. If they passed this legislation, Disney was going to make them pay. And the state of Florida, in large part thanks to the courage and clarity of Ron DeSantis, told Walt Disney, no, you don't call the shots here. You're not the duly elected government of the state of Florida? No. And I think, actually, to the point many locals in North Dakota might have, being worried about Bill Gates buying up a lot of farmland in their state. That Walt Disney example is one we do well to heed. The influence of wealthy corporations and wealthy individuals in state politics can get really, really ugly. They get some crazy hair-brained, utopian notion and all of a sudden we are not either a republic or a democracy we are an oligarchy this guy actually makes the rules because he's got the gold that's the golden rule not do unto others as you would have them do unto you not equal protection for the law not the lord detests unequal weights and measures no he who has the gold makes the rule and this guy has it so he's in charge actually a law unto himself and all of us But you come to this question of Walt Disney pushing back on the state of Florida, telling public schools they couldn't teach children under the age of eight about deviant sexual lifestyles, grooming children, encouraging children to be homosexuals, to be promiscuous heterosexuals, to change genders. And then what does Disney do when the state of Florida passes the legislation anyways, they start more aggressively pushing homosexuality in their content for children. So you mean to tell me that Disney is going to push homosexuality in their content, but the Christian children's entertainment is going to be vegetables slapping one another with fish. Do I have that right? Maybe we need to just read the Bible to our kids. Maybe that would be good. Maybe that would be wise. You know, it's funny. There was a series that I don't necessarily have uh, a dog in the fight with regards to, but it was recommended to us a few years back when I was bemoaning VeggieTales publicly. Some friends of ours weighed in and said, you know what, you should check out this cartoon series from a long time ago. Hanna-Barbera's stories from the Bible or the greatest adventure stories from the Bible, something like that. But we're talking 13 videos released between 1985 and 1992. And I haven't watched all of them, but we watched some and had our kids watch some. And they're, you know, not the most um, current. I guess you could say in terms of style and taste, (laughs) but I walked in on our kids watching the one on Daniel and the lion's den. And there is this scene of the pagan King of Babylon having a big party. And this is a biblical story, but they're having this big feast, this big party. And there's a lot of wine flowing There's a lot of food being eaten, and there's a lot of fooling around. And then, of course, if you know the biblical story, at a certain point, the king says some very blasphemous, irreverent things. And then, lo and behold, a invisible hand starts writing on the wall that he has been weighed, and he has been measured, and he's been found wanting. And boy, howdy, that's a buzzkill. That's very upsetting. But in the meantime, I had (laughs) to do a little bit of a double take. This is something my kids are watching, younger kids are watching. I walk in, I'm like, man, what are you guys watching? Because some of the scenes of this party leading up to the hand of God writing on the wall include women wearing the kind of uh, revealing clothing which one. Might associate with a pagan king's feast, the party that would be held in Babylon, and they're wearing kind of uh, harem girl outfits. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, "Wow, like this is this is not VeggieTales. This is definitely not VeggieTales." But a big question in my mind here has to do with where the scriptures give us detail. Do we leave those details out because we have a higher standard of propriety than God does? Do we leave those details out if we're talking with our kids about what's actually in the Bible? Do we skip over those stories because, you know, that's going to be really confusing to them? Well, maybe it will always be confusing to them if that's our mindset, if that's our approach. That's the trouble is when you train up a child in the way that they should go and they're older They don't depart from it. That also means when you train up a child in the way they should not go, it can be difficult for them to depart from that when they get older. The story of David killing Goliath is a great story. Why do we spend so much time telling that story over and over and over again? Or, for another example, what do we do with Daniel and the lion's den if we pick up the story when we do, and we drop the story, when we do, but we stop short of the men who accused Daniel and their families being thrown to the lions. If we stop short in any of these stories, because that's going to be confusing to our kids, is that so good? I, I don't know that that's so good. I'm not, I, I'm not sure that that makes us holier or more innocent Or makes our children holier or more innocent, I wonder if it gives us a rather lopsided view of not just these men and their times, but also God, because all scripture is breathed out by God. I mean, you think to yourself that it would be untoward to tell your kids the story of David and Bathsheba or the wife of Uriah. That would be untoward. Uh, I just, I don't think that would be appropriate. But wait, what are you implying about God having told us that story? Was it wrong for God to tell us? For this to be breathed out by God in his word? Do we understand the good purpose that God had for putting that in the text? Is the story of David taking the wife of Uriah, getting her pregnant, trying to trick Uriah into coming home so that everyone will think this is Uriah's child, then when that didn't work, having Uriah killed, is that story less important to our understanding of who God is and who David is than the story of David and Goliath? If we think so, again, maybe we need to consider what has gone into our thinking that way. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. If you've got uh, any other recommendations as far as content that is more even-handed in its portrayal, not gratuitous, not trying to revel in the most scandalous parts of the Bible, but not shying shying away from them either. If you have (laughs) some suggestions other than VeggieTales, I would be interested to hear them and to know them. Uh, If you think I'm missing something, too, if there's a biblical mandate for sheltering our kids the way that we so often do, uh, by all means, tell it to me. But for now, it's a Sunday morning. I need to go get ready for church, help get my kids ready for church. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.